When we hear communion or Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, we think of the Sunday sacrament. Today it's celebrated with a small morsel of bread and a bit of wine. But in the first century, it was a complete meal that brought God's kingdom into the present. Whereas today we think of communion as something personal, me and Jesus, the biblical image is one of justice and equality. It was an image of community life where God has already started to put things right, rather than an image of individualistic piety. The bottom line, table fellowship, what we know as communion, is living out God's future kingdom in the present. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. at Old Testament themes, uh, especially the ones that Father Paul Tarazi talks about in his book, The Rise of Scripture. And just to remind the listeners, Father Paul's thesis essentially is that the Old Testament was written in contrast to Hellenism, against the Hellenistic kings, the cities, their weapons, their armies, those sorts of things. And instead of depending on those things that are made by man, or the civilization that's created by man, we should be like the shepherd instead, who lives out in the wilderness dependent on God and his laws, his instruction. And Father Paul calls this shepherdism. And he says that this idea of shepherdism runs not only through the Old Testament, but also into the New Testament as well. So that's what we're going to look at today, especially the idea of table fellowship. So you may recall one of the important things about shepherdism is the idea that you have to get along with all the other tribes in the Syrian desert. Now this is important. We may call this the love of neighbor today, but it's important because when your sheep needs to go to the oasis and gets water, so does the other tribe. Their sheep also needs water. And if you can't get along at the oasis in the Syrian desert, then you're in big trouble because violence might erupt and that might be the end of your tribe. And so the idea is that everyone learns to live together underneath God's command, his instruction, his in Torah, in the Syrian desert, like a shepherd, so that everyone has access to the necessities of life, that is, the water in the oasis. Now, before we turn and look at how that idea plays out in table fellowship, I want to bring us back to the prophet Isaiah, because Isaiah has a vision of what the world will look like when God comes to put everything right, and hint it's going to look a lot like table fellowship. It's going to be a grand banquet where all nations recognize the God of Israel, and he brings justice to the world by making sure there is enough for everyone. In other words, this is Isaiah's kingdom of God. Now I'm going to look at two passages specifically. So let me read you the first one. This is Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. The Lord of heaven's armies will hold a banquet For all the nations on this mountain, this is Mount Zion, at this banquet there will be plenty of meat and aged wine, tender meat and choicest wine. On this mountain he will swallow up the shroud that is over all the peoples, the woven covering that is over all the nations. He will swallow up death permanently. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Indeed, the Lord has announced it. 
Now, I think what's really important here is the idea of there's a banquet and there's plenty of meat in aged wine, tender meat and the choicest wine. This is the best of the best. Now, for us as Americans, we may think, oh, this sounds like a nice end of the world sort of scenario. God comes and throws a big party and everyone's able to sit down and have a nice meal. But what I don't want us to miss is that this is also an image of justice. In other words, everyone at this banquet will have meat and wine. They have the best food possible, and everyone has access to this. Societies can be unfair, and sometimes there are people with a lot of wealth, and they have access to land and corporations and money, political influence. And then there are people who are struggling to survive. In the Old Testament, these are the widows and the orphans and the stranger. And so what God is doing is he's coming and he's saying, guess what? The wealth that's being concentrated among the elite in society, among the king and the aristocrats, I'm going to redistribute that so that everyone has access to food, which is to say that everyone has access to the necessities of life. Because if you don't have access to food, then how are you going to survive? We see the same idea of justice, this distribution of land playing out in the law, especially in Leviticus. So there are a few laws that we like to skip over, because let's face it, sometimes when we're reading through the Old Testament, we get through Genesis, and it's a nice story. We get through parts of Exodus, which is a nice story, and then we get to those legal codes, or the codes about how the priests are supposed to act, how the tabernacle was supposed to be made, and we get bored. But these are really important parts. So let me read a few of them for you. This is Leviticus. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. With me you are but aliens and tenants. In other words, what God is saying is he owns the land, and he's assigned it to all the different tribes, all the different families. He's assigned a piece of land for them. This is what they need to survive. Now sometimes, as life gets messy and droughts happen, you may sell off pieces of land, or maybe you try to, maybe you're the person who's there trying to gather up everyone else's land so you can create for yourself a, a small corporation of sorts. Well, God's saying that's not fair because if you lose your land, you essentially lose your access to survival. You won't be able to grow the food you need to live. And so in the, in the Old Testament, what they would do is this year of Jubilee. Now, we have no evidence archaeologically that they ever actually did this, but it's in the legal code as kind of a reminder to the people that God is interested in justice. So in the year of Jubilee, which happened every 50 years, all the land reverts back to its original owners so that people who may have gotten, say, the short straw in life now again have access to the land to grow food, to raise crops, uh, to raise animals, whatever they need for survival. So it's about justice. God redistributes the land so that everyone is again on equal setting. Here's another law from Leviticus 25. If any of your kin fall into difficulty and become dependent on you, you shall support them. You shall not lend them your money at interest taken in advance or provide them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. In other words, the laws against interest is again trying to protect the people so that they have access to the things they need in life. So when Isaiah is talking about this grand banquet with the best meat and the best wine, what Isaiah is talking about is a world in the end where God has given access to people of the things they need for survival. 
in this time period in the Old Testament, what that was, was land, because that was your family's survival. Here's another quote from Isaiah. This time it's from Isaiah 66, 18 through 22. I hate their deeds and thoughts, so I am coming to gather all the nations and ethnic groups. They will come and witness my splendor. I will perform a mighty act among them and then send some of those who remain to the nations. To Tarshish, Pool, Lud, known for its archers, to Baal, Javan, and to the distant coastlands that have not yet heard about me or seen my splendor. They will tell the nations of my splendor. They will bring back all their countrymen from the nations as an offering to the Lord. They will bring them on horses, in chariots, in wagons, on mules, and on camels to my holy hill in Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring offerings to the Lord's temple in ritually pure containers, I will choose some of them as priests and Levites, says the Lord. For just as the new heavens and the new earth I am about to make will remain standing before me, says the Lord, so your descendants and your name will remain. So again, this is an idea that when God sets things right, and as Christians we believe he's done this through Jesus Christ, through his crucifixion, when God works to set things right, this is not just a a mode of justice for the Judeans, but this is a mode of justice for the entire world. God is not just an ethnic God, but he's a universal God, the God of the entire cosmos. And so he's going to call together a diverse group of people and set everyone at his table. And probably what was most shocking to the Judeans when they first heard this was the idea that he would take from all these nations, some of them to be priests. This was almost heretical, because if you think about the temple in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, it was divided into different courts. So you had the court of the Gentiles, which was an outer ring where foreigners could go. Then as you got closer to the temple, they had the court for the women. And then those who could get the closest were the Judean men, and then the priests, and then in the Holy of Holies, the high priest. And so it was very hierarchical in this sense. But here's an image of God giving a banquet, an image of justice, where he gives access to land to everyone so that they all have what they need to eat and survive. But he's doing this sort of justice for everyone, all nations, even those hated Gentiles, even those Romans who are now occupying the Judeans at the time of Jesus. So this is an image of what shepherdism looks like when it's played out on the ground. When everyone comes around at the oasis and they come together in peace, what it looks like is Isaiah's banquet. Everyone has access to what they need. Everyone can drink of the water if they need it. And it's different nations or different tribes coming together and everyone being next to each other in peace. So this is Isaiah's vision. This image of Isaiah's banquet is now being played out by the early Christians in table fellowship. It's this idea of these different people coming together and having access to food. And it's very important that it's food, because if you think about the land that the Old Testament was concerned about, those laws in Leviticus, well, now the Romans essentially occupy the land. And the Romans ruled through client kings. So at the time of Jesus's birth, this was Herod the Great. And then at the time of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, this was Herod Antipas, which was Herod the Great's son. And the way that these two Herods ruled was what I call Romanization through urbanization for commercialization. 
So in other words, both Herods thought that they were little Caesars, and they thought that they owned all of the land. You see, both Herods went on this huge building project. So Herod the Great built more than anybody else in Palestine, probably at any point in history. He built Caesarea Maritima, which was a port city. So today that would be on the Mediterranean coast in modern-day Israel. And then his son did something similar and built Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. He built a little city and also named it after the then Roman emperor. And so you have to wonder, where did they get the money to do this building project? Well, it was on the backs of the peasants, on the backs of the poor people. So what they did is they built these cities in the Roman style. This is why I would say Romanization through urbanization is that they tried to imitate Rome by building cities and ignoring the countryside. And the reason they did Romanization for urbanization by commercialization is that what they would do is they took up all the peasants' farms and they forced them to do what's called monocropping. So polycropping is the idea that on a piece of land, a farmer would grow different types of food or he'd use it in different sorts of ways. Maybe this part of the land would be for crops and this other part would be for grazing for animals and those sorts of things. And when a farmer did polycropping like this, he was able to grow the food that he needed to support his family. Well, what the Herods did is they forced the peasants, or these farmers, to grow a single crop. This is monocropping. And when they grew this single crop, what they would do is they would then take it to the port and sell it. And this is where they got their money to build their cities. Of course, this was good for Herod because it made him look good in the eyes of Caesar. It made these cities look really nice. But it was bad for the peasants because it was on their backs that these cities were being built. In other words, they were being taxed and no longer had access to the food they needed, to the things of life. When the early Christians got together and they were living out Isaiah's banquet, this idea of God's justice for all people, where everyone has access to what they need, they're now no longer concerned with land because the land is kind of a done deal. Herod owns the land. That's it. But the fruit of the land can still be shared. And so this is where the idea of table fellowship comes in. And this is how God's justice in the present is being celebrated. That everyone comes together and shares the fruit of the land, the bread and the wine, and they share it together. It's like, again, going back to the oasis, they're now able to all sit down together with different tribes, whether they're Jew or Gentile, or whether they're male and female or slave and free. They're sitting down together at the oasis and sharing the bounty, the fruit of the land, despite Herod taxing them and trying to force them to grow crops specifically for his cities. So this early church celebrated table fellowship, what we call communion, and this fellowship included everyone in this meal, everyone who's willing to submit to the law and live as if circumcised in heart, and they were able to demonstrate the community's communion with God and one another. In other words, Isaiah's banquet is being brought into the present from the future because of Christ's sacrifice and what he has done. So as you can imagine, threats arose and things didn't always work out as well as they needed. So there are two threats that Paul deals with in his letters. The first one comes from Galatians. So here, let me read Galatians 2, 11 through 14 to you. And when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he had clearly done wrong. Until certain people came from James, he had been eating with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he stopped doing this and separated himself because he was afraid 
of those who were pro-circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also joined with him in his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray with them by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not behaving consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, If you, although you are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you try to force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So that's Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. So here's what had happened. Paul had gone down to Jerusalem, and he had said, I want to be the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, he didn't just say that. He had said, I've been called by Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And the church in Jerusalem, which was made up of Judeans, which include James and Peter, they said, yep, that sounds good to us. And so they gave permission to Paul to go out and start preaching to the Gentiles. And one of the key things that Paul insisted on was that Gentiles don't have to obey the observances of the law. Now, this is what we talked about when I interviewed uh, Professor Matthew Thomas. We talked about when Paul says works of the law, what exactly is he talking about? So as we know from the early church fathers, what Paul is talking about is not the law in general, but rather specific Jewish observances, such as circumcision, kosher keeping, Sabbath keeping, and purity laws, these sorts of things. And what Paul is saying is that to be a part of Israel, and of course now through Jesus Christ, a part of this new Israel, God saves Israel through his grace. It's his mercy that he saved. But the Judeans, to show that they're a part of Israel, would have these observances, these things, these markers, kind of like identity badges. And circumcision was one of them. So Paul said that's no longer an identity marker that means that you're part of Israel. What matters now is this faith in Christ, because it's around Christ that God has called his people, this new Israel. Well, so... Peter and James seems to have agreed at one point. This is true. You don't have to have these Jewish identity markers, such as circumcision, in order to be a part of God's people anymore. In Christ, the game has changed. And so Paul goes up to Antioch, and things are going well, and Peter goes, and things are going well, and everyone is sitting down together. They're ignoring these identity markers. The Jew and the Gentile are sitting down together to celebrate this table fellowship. Well, all of a sudden it says... Certain people came from James, and for whatever reason, they were able to convince Peter that these identity markers mattered again, and that it was improper to be eating with Gentiles who had not been circumcised. And so Peter kind of pulls away and stops eating with, uh, with the Gentiles. In other words, he's broken table fellowship. No longer is everyone coming together at the oasis to live in peace. They're eating at separate tables. And Paul chastises him for this. He says, that's not what we agreed to. Remember that idea of Isaiah's banquet? It's all nations coming together, and no place in Isaiah does it say that these nations, these Gentiles, have to be circumcised. In Christ, what matters now is faith, or trust, not circumcision. And so Paul's able to put a corrective on this and kind of make sure that the peace lasts at the table fellowship rather than making it a means of schism and separation. But that wasn't the only division. So if that was a division caused by Judeans, there's also a division caused by Gentiles. And this comes in 1 Corinthians. Let me read this to you. Now, in giving the following instruction, I do not praise you, 
because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, so that those of you who are approved may be evident. Now when you come together at the same place, you are not really eating the Lord's Supper. For when it is time to eat, everyone proceeds with his own supper. One is hungry, and another becomes drunk. Do you not have houses so that you can eat and drink? Or are you trying to show contempt for the church of God by shaming those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I will not praise you for this. That's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 22. So to understand the threat in this community, we have to understand a little bit about how Roman banquets worked. So at this time, when Paul is visiting, Corinth wasn't just a Greek town anymore. It had been destroyed and rebuilt as a Roman military garrison. So we can assume it was probably heavily Romanized. And so there were a lot of Roman customs, including the Roman banquet. So in a Roman house, they would hold the banquets in a room called the triclinium. So the triclinium was essentially a dining room. And it gets its name from the furniture in the room. So they would have three couches. That's the tripart of triclinium. And the last part means to recline. So Romans didn't sit at a table like we do today. They would recline on these couches. And then in front of the couches, they would have kind of coffee tables. And their servants would have to come and serve them. You can think of the idea of deacon, this table servant that we have today uh, within the churches. And this affair was a very hierarchical affair. And at these Roman parties, the person who sat in the middle was the most important, probably the host. And then to his right and left on those couches were the next most important people. And as you kind of went down in rank, you kind of got further and further away from that center couch. You were either standing or sitting in the corner, or maybe you had to be in the atrium or in the courtyard rather than in the actual triclinium. And these affairs were very hierarchical. You have to remember, a Roman house wasn't just in a nuclear family as we think of it. A Roman household included the paterfamilias, who was the head of the household, and then underneath him, um, his own family, but then all those that he supported. And this is how the Roman household worked. So if you want to think of this um, in a modern way, you can think of it as a corporation. So the paterfamilias was the CEO, and then you had the people of the individual companies or different departments underneath him and their families and everyone that was dependent on it. And this is kind of how Roman neighborhoods operated, is it was the kind of the paterfamilias, and then everyone that was dependent on him lived in the neighborhood, its own little community, if you will. And when they held these banquets, the, the status of all these people in relation to the paterfamilias was very clear. In fact, those who were the invited guests or the paterfamilias would eat better food than those on the bottom. And so there were different sorts of food. The people at the top ate the best food, and those at the bottom ate the worst food, the cheapest food, the kind of the leftovers, if you will. So not only did they not get to eat in the triclinium necessarily, but they didn't also get to eat the same food. And that's probably what was happening here at Corinth, is that the elite or the aristocracy of the town could get together early and start eating of the best food because they didn't actually have to do the work. It was the people lower on the food chain that did the work. So by the time they finished their work and were able to join in the banquet, it was already half over. And at that, they got bad seats and they ate bad food or cheap food. 
And so Paul is chastising them. Again, he's saying that's not what God's justice looks like. Remember that idea in Isaiah where everyone gets the best meat and the best wine and we sit down together as equals and eat this? Well, that's what this idea of table fellowship is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a Roman banquet with these different sorts of hierarchies and different sorts of food. And so Paul is correcting this. And he's saying this table fellowship is about God's justice. It's about the people at the bottom getting access to the fruits of the land. The people at the bottom get access to what they need for life. In other words, you could almost think of this as a form of charity, that at least once a week, the poor in society could come together with the rich and have a nice meal. They could be sustained in this way. And so that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 11 here. And so you can think about this again in terms of Leviticus, this idea that God's giving access to the land to everyone. Well, now God is giving access to the fruits of the land to everyone through table fellowship, through communion. So everyone's partaking of the same bread. And everyone is under the teaching of Christ, which is the bread of life. And so table fellowship is about overcoming these obstacles that get in the way of God's justice. And we're taking this end-time justice that happens when God sets things right at the end of time and we're bringing it into the present. We're saying we're going to go against cultural norms. We're going to go against the idea of, of what it means to be Jew and Gentile. And we're going to go against societal norms, this idea of where your standing is in society. And we're going to bring God's justice into the world now and we're going to live by that justice. So this is what table fellowship looked like and what it meant in the New Testament in Scripture. It wasn't just personal piety, but it was about living in community under God's law with God's justice. This was the good news. This was the liberation. This was all those things we hear about in the Beatitudes being lived out in the here and now. And so our call as Christians today is to walk the same way, to walk the same path. And not just to make our churches into little cliques, and not just to think about it's a Jesus and me sort of thing when we go to communion, but it's about living out God's vision for the world, the one we see in Isaiah, the great banquet, here and now with everyone in our community. So I pray, brothers and sisters, that we're all able to come to the banquet together and walk the way.